Hello everyone and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a feature of Singularity Weblog where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you may already know, my name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. Today, I'm privileged to have Andrew Crofts as my guest with the answers. According to the Daily Telegraph, Andrew Crofts is the king of British ghostwriters, and he has ghosted a staggering amount of books and spent a lot of time thinking about the nature of ghostwriting and what it takes to find another person's voice, a one-man word factory. But in addition to that, Andrew has published probably over 80 books for over four years as an author and ghostwriter, many of which have become international number one bestsellers. His subject matters and co-authors have ranged from billionaires to bonded laborers, reality television stars to the rulers of medium-sized companies and countries, rock stars to bad girls. He is also a travel writer, a business writer, and a published novelist. So, without further ado, let me welcome Andrew Cross to our show. It is very great to have you here today, Andrew. Thank you very much, Nicola. So, Andrew, um, I will not waste any time and would like to jump straight into our interview with the first question, um, which is usually the same one of all my interviewees, and it is, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you get to become uh, first maybe interested in writing and then eventually you became a writer yourself? Well, I was interested from, from the day I left school, which was uh, when I was about 17, and I wanted to be a writer partly because I wanted to be freelance and I wanted a profession where I could follow my own interests um, and not have to turn up at a, an office and do what other people wanted. And if something caught my attention, I wanted to be able to go off and, uh, and do it and then spend uh, time on my own writing actual uh, writing about it. So I started out uh, just getting any sort of writing work I could. So initially it was... Um, it was articles, and I would do uh, business writing, and I would do absolutely anything I could. But all the time I was trying to sell books as well. But it takes, it takes a long time to get publishers to accept that, uh, that you are able to produce an entire book. So I suppose it was probably about 10 years, I was probably in my 20s, before I started to get commissions from publishers. And then it was a little bit after that that I discovered um, the art of ghostwriting, or the craft perhaps to go to which makes life a lot easier in many ways because it means you get all the subject matter brought to you in one person. You don't have to do a huge amount of research. Um, and uh, it also uh, means you don't have to do the promotion of the book in the same way. Once you've written it and you've exhausted your curiosity on the subject, you can move on to the next project. But at the same time, there were still certain projects like this one with James Martin, which I've just done, um, where I actually wanted to write the book anyway under my own steam, so to speak. So it was, it was written uh, objectively in my name, uh, in, in my words, rather, well, and in my name, rather than being uh, in his words, as, as quite a lot of my books are. They're written in the... I will get back to your book, because that's the, the main reason why we are here today. But um, I would still like to dig a little deeper and ask you this question. Um, so, so in the end of the day, do you consider yourself to be a writer or a ghostwriter? I am a writer who makes most of his living from ghostwriting. Most writers will ghostwrite 
if you catch them at the right moment, and it, 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 which means if they're interested in the subject and if they haven't got anything else on and they're hungry. Um, but they don't necessarily set their stall out, as I have for many years, to say, if you've got an interesting story, bring it to me, and, you, and you're, you're not able to write it yourself for whatever reason, you don't have the time or the ability or the inclination, bring it to me, and I will produce for you the book that you would write if you had the time and, and, the, uh, and the skill. So I think, so I am a writer, but ghostwriting is what I'm best known as, as the, the, in England, certainly, that's what I'm best known for. And, and, and it's very appropriate then to move on to the subject of your latest book, titled The Change, Ag the Change Agent, How to Create a Wonderful World, which I have right here with me, and which I just finished reading last night and enjoyed immensely. Uh, but perhaps it's best to let you tell our viewers and listeners what this book is all about and how you came up to writing it. Well, I first uh, met James Martin about 20 years ago uh, when, when I wrote, I was commissioned by McGraw-Hill to write a book about a business which was called the James Martin Associates at that time. And he was very, very successful at that time as a technology guru. He, he worked at IBM um, in the 60s. And he then got off and become an independent uh, guru on technology and, and predictions of the future. He predicted the Internet. He predicted all sorts of things that have, that have come true. Uh, and then there was a, and, then, and then I sort of lost touch with him. And then 20 uh, just recently, I heard that he had just donated a hundred uh, million dollars of his own money to Oxford University which made him the biggest ever donor to a British, a private donor to a British university, um, and um, to, to start a school of the future, a school studying all the big subjects of the 21st century, because he'd written a book called uh, The Meaning of the 21st Century, which uh, looked at all the, the major, major threats to mankind at the moment, which is, is obviously global warming, uh, shortage of water, population, um, future cities, and, and all, the, all the things that, 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 that worry us. Um, and he wanted to set up a school which would bring together all the people at Oxford who think about these things, from, from uh, the Alzheimer's problem to pandemics to, to uh, the, the, the new fuel sources, all these things, and try to get some ideas on, on how, to, how the future is likely to pan out. And I was intrigued to see that I, he'd, I knew he was very successful when I met him 20 years ago, but I hadn't realized um, as he was an independent, a, a freelance professor, basically, um, that he had been so successful he could afford to give away $100 million. Um, and so I got back in touch with him. And he, um, he was very pleased to hear from me because he thought I should write a book on the subject. He said that, you know, there was a lot to be said. And he said, I bought an island in Bermuda, a private island in Bermuda. Why don't you come up there and we can talk about it? Well, seriously, so suddenly the project got even more interesting and tempting. <laughs> Anybody who has a private island is, is always catches my attention. And the island was absolutely fascinating. He's created this little kingdom uh, there, um, a sort of ecological uh, experiment in some ways. Uh, he's built an extraordinary house. He's also discovered um, under the island, he thought he bought a, a big lump of rock, basically, covered in in vegetation, and when he started hacking back the vegetation, he found uh, that under the rocks there were hidden catacombs, um, and when, which nobody seemed to have any uh, know anything about. And when he uh, when they when they cleared them all out, they realised what they must be is ammunition stores built by the English 
during the war for independence. And of course, they obviously didn't, never told anybody they, they'd got them there. And they're like railway arches. These are gigantic um, structures. So he, as well as building this wonderful fantasy house and garden on the top, the, uh, the, the, the island's about eight acres. Um, he, he also developed these, this wonderful um, subterranean world underneath the island as well. And in fact, when um, Rudy Giuliani was running for president, or was thinking of running for president, and wanted to raise, uh, wanted to, to do some fundraising in Bermuda, he actually asked him if he could borrow, because um, he didn't want everybody else to know that he was there, to borrow these tunnels under the island. So he brought about, I think, about 40 billionaires into one of these tunnels for dinner and put up a French kitchen in another one, and nobody knew he'd ever been there. The whole thing happened underneath the island. So it was... It, the, the story was many layered. It was first of all, it was the the, the, the uh, looking at the future and the school that he set up at Oxford um, and the whole singularity uh, connection. Then there was the looking at Jim's own personal biography because he was a, a, a he'd been a, a come from a poor family in the Midlands. He'd won a scholarship um, from his grammar school to uh, to Oxford. In the, uh, in the 30s, I guess, or 40s, and, um, and had gone, uh, it was after all, would be the 40s, and had gone on to, 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 to create this enormous fortune as well. So there was a story, there was a personal story, and then there was the story of this island as well, and the discovery of it. And I wrote it, um, in the form of part of, part of it as, as a straight biography, um, and part of it in the form of a conversation between him and me, so that he could explain to me all the ideas that he has, um, which um, are behind the, the founding of the school in Oxford, which is called the Oxford Martin School. So, so that is how the book. So, in that case, it seems the almost like unbelievable description of the island and the surroundings of it are actually factually accurate. Oh, everything is accurate. And in fact, uh, a journalist from The Independent who read the book decided he wanted to have a look as well. And, and <laughs> he went out and had almost exactly the same experience of being completely I would like to have a look as well, too. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, and Jim is always very happy to, to, to uh, James Martin, that is, is always very happy to, to have guests come out and visit him there because he, he just loves talking about his pet subjects and showing people around his island. Um, it's it is it's a bit like Citizen Kane in, in his uh, in his, uh, his castle in in California. So, in that sense, would you call your your book to be non-fiction or fiction? Oh, it's totally non-fiction. Uh, totally totally non-fiction. Yes, it's absolutely true. I mean, it's, ri- it's written it's written in the form of uh, half of it is the uh, is my visit to the island and the conversations with Jim, mm-hmm. and half of it is um, a, a looking back from his birth through his time at IBM, how he came to come out of IBM, how he came to start to build this fortune. that is, Because he's gone on to, to, to give even more money to, to, um, to Oxford. I think in total he's now given 150, um, $150 million. Um, and he's also uh, brought in other people like uh, Bill Gates and George Soros, and I believe they've also contributed now in matching funds. So it's, a, it, it's, it's grown into a considerable venture at Oxford. Andrew, there seem to be two parallel narratives, um, it seems to me, that are unfolding together simultaneously um, throughout the book. One telling the story of Andrew Crofts as a guest uh, on this mysterious island owned by James Martin, and the other one telling the story of a young boy from a poor English family who was born shortly before World War II. 
Are both of those stories stories told by Andrew Crofts, or is it just your story told by Andrew Crofts and James Martin's story told by himself? Well, it was it was his story as he told it to me. Uh, he's, I mean, he had when I first met him twenty years ago, quite a lot of the material I knew already from having I'd been out. To, he, he didn't have the island then. He lived in a, a place on uh, twenty years ago. He lived in a place called Tucker's Town in Bermuda. Uh, which is where most of the, a lot of the, the, the wealthy live. Um, and we spent some time talking at that stage about his background and about his, his, his personal story. So I already knew quite a bit about that. Um, but, but it's all, it's, it's as he told the story to me, um, I relayed it in my own words, um, in the book. But you're right. Yeah. There are two, there are two. It's very distinctly divided into two narratives. Yeah. Uh, narrative so, so anybody who is particularly interested in in in, um, in the making of the man, but less interested in what he's got to say now, can easily distinguish. You can, read, you can pick out the bits quite easily that yeah. that will interest you. And, and likewise, if you're interested in his ideas, I, I, I found that literary tool quite useful and quite uh, sort of engaging to going back and forth in time and sort of the present and the past and tracing the path from the past into the present, but yet focused entirely on to the future. I, I, I found that fascinating, and I love that. It could be quite a dry subject otherwise. I mean, if we, just, if we just talked about his ideas or we just followed his career, I thought it could make quite a, a long and heavy read, and I thought this would break it up and, and, and make it a, a, an easier, an e- more easily digested read. That was the hope, so that's good. So let me ask you this. Now that you've written and published the book, which I recommend everyone read, and of course I'm going to post links to it after our um, interview is over, but what what would be the goal, the ultimate goal that you would like to accomplish with the book now that it's finished? Well, I think, I, firstly, I think James, James should be much better known and, and, and fated for, for his enormous achievement. I mean, it is, he, I mean to be a, the biggest ever donor to a, an English university is an extraordinary uh, achievement for somebody, especially somebody who has basically made his fortune single-handed. It's not, you know, it's not as if he's had a mighty company to sell or anything like that. It's all been done with his lectures, his books, his videos. Um, and his teachings. Um, he's not, I don't think he's. I don't think he uh, receives nearly enough credit for uh, the accuracy of the of the uh, predictions he's done. I mean, he has. To, he's, he was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for one of his books, which is of course a huge honour. But 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 the man in the street, I don't think, knows as much about him as he should. I think he should be much better known. Uh, but I think also many of his messages should be much better known. I think it's he ha- he has so many. Um, I mean, he had what he what his position at, the, at because of the school is that he gets to know and talk to an enormous number of extraordinarily clever experts in a lot of different subjects and bring them together. And each of these people are specialists in their own area. But Jim has an, enorm, uh, an enormous capacity for grasping the big picture and making uh, some very startling uh, predictions about the future and about what, what young people today could and should be doing uh, in the hope of basically saving the planet. Right? His big dream is, or his big picture, is that we're, we're, on the, we're at this cusp uh, in time. The 21st century is going to be the century where we, we either create the greatest, uh, because, of, because of the singularity and because of uh, technology, the greatest civilization ever, a sort of a gigantic renaissance, or we could, if we get it wrong, 
um, completely mess it up and maybe even destroy Homo sapiens completely and go you know, plunge ourselves back into the Dark Ages. And he puts a very, very succinct case. He's very, very good at, at explaining why he thinks this will happen. Um, he's, he can't be absolutely sure which of these things is going to happen because it depends on what choices we all make. And he's a man in his 70s, so he's not going to be around to, to, to see himself. But he's, he, he has this, uh, this theory that... It, it, if he had any, if he could choose any time to be alive in history, he says he would like to be young today because he thinks this is the most exciting time in the history of mankind and that we could see the most colossal developments over the next few years, which we, you know a great deal about because of the singularity. And if it all works as it is hoped it will work, it could bring a whole golden age of mankind. And I, I just think that I think he's, he just is very encouraging. In a time when a, most people are full of doom and gloom about the, what we're doing to the planet and the climate and to ourselves and, um, and, and, and the future and the, the, the huge gap that's developed between the rich and the poor, he has an awful lot of, of potentially positive messages um, to put across as to how this could actually be for our own good, not for our, for, for our, to our detriment. Uh, let me dive into the meat of the matter here and, and, and ask you this. Were you ever aware of the concept of the technological singularity before that sort of hilarious moment in the book where James Martin sort of pops out the concept right out of nowhere, it seems, almost. No, and it's no, I, I, no I, was, I, was, I was completely ignorant. And he, he, uh, he sort of said that, yes, he mentioned the singularities, you say, as if, as if I, and I had, to, had to make, I had to make an instant decision. Should I own up immediately that I hadn't a clue what he was talking about and get him to explain it? Uh, or should I try to be you know, a bit like a child in a class? Or should I, uh, or should I bluff it out? And luckily, I, I had the courage to say quickly, I haven't a clue. And he explained, and of course, once, I mean, I, I knew, I knew a lot of the elements. I hadn't heard the term singularity, um, at that stage. This was a few, a couple of years ago, or, or a year, yeah, 18 months, two years ago when I was doing the interviews. And it, it was a new, I hadn't heard of Ray Kurzweil and things like this. And so it sent me off to do a lot of research in all sorts of areas. And I found I, there was an awful lot of other material going on. Um, but yes, it was, no, I, 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 it was news to me and, and, but, and a wonderful concept. It sort of brought, it helped me to understand a lot of what James was talking about because it brought, again, it brings so many subjects together, um, in, in, in one place. Uh, actually, I would, uh, sort of use this moment to just read a couple of paragraphs of your book because I think they're, they're just great. Um, so, the thing that people need to understand, Jim said after a while, is that the singularity will become a reality in the coming years. I'm sorry, I had a horrible feeling I might have missed something, like those times at school when you would discover you had daydreamed through some vital bit of the teacher's explanation that you had left it too late to ask and that nothing was going to make sense from now on. What is the singularity exactly? And then Jim's, Jim's answer is, it is a break in human evolution that will be caused by the staggering speed of technological evolution. I think yeah. actually myself that's, that's one of the best definitions perhaps out there. There's many uh, competing definitions, each one 
with its unique strengths and weaknesses, but I think that's one of the, the better ones out there. I think that's his skill. He is a tremendous communicator. If you ever are lucky enough to get to one of his lectures, he's, he is very, very good at making very complex subjects um, interesting and, and relevant and, and understandable by anybody, even if they're not a specialist in that subject. I mean, I, I don't know what you think, but I think the singularity is not a terribly easy phrase to grasp. I mean, it's not Very obvious hard. at all just from that word. And, and, and in fact, I said that to Jim, and he said, well, of course, if I could think of something better, I'm sure he was sure everyone would be delighted. <laughs> he has yet been able to come up with anything that, that quite explains what, what, um, what it's all about. Uh, it would be, it would perhaps, perhaps you on your, on your, uh, on your website should run a competition for possible alternative, uh, titles for the, for, well, I have I have a, a a definition page where I have listed probably seven or eight different versions of the definition, and I was actually thinking I would add I would definitely add James Martin's definition there. But let me uh, be very uh, do the same thing that you did and confess my ignorance here. That just like you were ignorant of the concept of the singularity, I myself was actually quite ignorant of James Martin when I picked up the book and started reading it. So I had to do a little research. Then eventually I went to his website. I watched his uh, movie, The Meaning of the 21st Century, which is, by the way, a great movie, narrated by Michael Douglas, and I recommend everybody watches it. Uh, and it raises many of, if probably all of the questions that you, you go into detail here in your book. But so you were t exposed by, to the concept of the singularity for a first time at that moment. So how have your perception of the concept evolved uh, since that moment on? Can you sort well, of lead he, us through? Well, as soon as he mentioned, of course, I went off to look it up and came across Ray Kurzweil and read everything that I could on the subject. Mm -hmm. I think it made me feel very optimistic. I think at that stage, and, and, which is, again, why I think I'd, I like the idea of people listening to James and, and and, and following the same path, it did make me see that there was enormous hope for the world, if we can get it right, um, that we are about, and, and quite excited too, that, that over the next, how I mean, it varies, doesn't it? We might say two years, 10 years, or 50 years, but, but over, the over the coming period, certainly in my children's lifetime, um, there are going to be the most extraordinary and exciting things happening. And we're beginning to see them already, uh, as well as the dreadful things. Um, and and I, I think I felt an enormous, uh, an enormous rush of excitement at the, at the prospect of, of what it could all mean and what might be. And also, particularly in, the, in being in the publishing industry, um, I, which is the knowledge industry, we really should be a little bit more switched on about this. When, I mean, the publishing industry is not renowned for being on the cutting edge of, of anything at all. But it does actually look, since this Christmas, when everybody started giving each other uh, iPads and Kindles and Kindles. so forth, that we are actually beginning to grasp the fact that that, uh, that printing that printing great big lumps of paper isn't necessarily uh, the only way to, to move forward, and that we could be plugged into to uh, something much more exciting, something um, something just unimaginable a few years ago that could take knowledge, human knowledge to to a whole to a whole new place. And, and I, I just think the whole thing is very exciting. And Jim is very good. And it is, as you say, when you, you say you hadn't heard of him before, and an awful lot of people say that. And it is extraordinary to me that you can do something like found a school at Oxford in your own name, um, giving these vast sums of money, and people still haven't heard of you. 
Um, and it just said the man at the Independent said the same thing. And then he went away and, and wrote a article, five, five pages of article, uh, five pages about his trip and everything in the Independent a week or two ago. And, you know, it, 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 and you can write to these enormous, and there's such, there's so much media noise out there that you can, you can have somebody of this stature, somebody who has achieved this much, and still hardly any of us have heard of him. Yeah, and, and especially well, since I've been sort of doing research and working in the field, for probably five or six years now, and to have somebody of his stature, as you said, who has published over a hundred books in computer science, in all kinds of related technologies and fields, and somebody like me never heard of it. I mean, for one, it shows the limit of my knowledge, personal ignorance too. But but also, I I think it it also has to do something with the North American and, and sort of European or British divide, maybe a little bit. But anyway, let me focus on, on your emotional response to the concept after you first heard about it. Because I find that people usually have a very strong emotional response to the singularity, but it's not always pos- uh, positive. So quite often people are scared and, and uh, or for a number of other reasons, respond in a very negative, pessimistic way to the concept and to all the possibilities that could happen. So, for example, people decide to focus on issues like weapons of mass destruction, biological agents modified with genetic engineering, um, the destructive forces of our ever-growing technological capabilities, and so on. And so Ray Kurzweil, for for example, is quite often being criticized for being overtly optimistic. And it strikes me that James Martin is, I'd say, equally optimistic. Um, so, from your own perspective, why should we not be pessimists? Why should we not think that the end is near and that, uh, you know, either through weapons of mass destruction or through some kind of, uh, you know, other technological catastrophe we can wipe the Homo sapiens out of the the planet. Well, of course, we still may. Um, but I think my generation was brought up being told that we were going to be wiped out by the Russians, and it was, it's turned out to be a little like the Wizard of Oz. Did when when the wall actually came down and we saw into what was going on over there, we realised actually we were never in a huge amount of danger. There was a little bit of a free saw around the Bay of Pigs, uh, but 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 in fact we we were we were frightened about nothing at all. The natural human uh, condition is, I think, to be frightened of the unknown. Uh, but if but, but but we have the known to look back on. We can look back on history, and I think, to be honest, it would be a great deal more frightening to be living in medieval London uh, when the plague struck or the fire struck, or uh, I think to you know when human life expectancy was thirty or forty years, when you you spent most of your life with toothache or or dying in childbirth or setting light to your uh, your clothes uh, on, on an open fire, and, and life was really very precarious indeed. Um, and I think that it, actually, if we look at it, on the whole, there may be certain elements we don't like about modern life, but on the whole, um, it's got better and better for most people. For those it, 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 is, it isn't better for, they're people who probably wouldn't have survived at all in the past. Um, it, you know, our population has grown, and that is not necessarily a good thing at all for the planet, um, but for all the people who would have survived anyway, life is probably um, less less painful. It is longer. It is uh, has many more compensations than it did in the past. 
So at any stage in history, uh, somebody who was optimistic would probably have been right more often than somebody who was pessimistic. You will lose things along the way, and people who... who who, uh, who, who love live entertainment and hate television would, would be able to point to the fact that vaudeville has died, perhaps, or, or um, there are all sorts of things that we've lost along the way. Also, when you look back at things that people remember fondly, they're often not quite as wonderful, even in the short term, people will talk about. Everybody will remember their own time as being a golden age, so people <laughs> of my age will remember television of the 60s and 70s being wonderful. When you actually watch programmes from the 60s or 70s, you see they actually weren't wonderful at all, and they're really very primitive compared to what we have now. And I think that's, that's a, a very flippant example, but I think that same, that same sort of view... Um, could be put across everything. We eat better, uh, we are, but more people are warm and safe and, and are not uh, murdered on the streets than they would have been three, four hundred years ago. Um, and also, of course, far less wars, although we still have wars and they're, they're a terrible thing. They are nothing compared to the, to the horrors of the First World War and the Second World War. Well, I think there's also another element to that optimism that you bring very well out in your book, um, which is actually a quote, again, from James Martin. Um, and I think that quote represents what psychologists often call as the uh, as embracing agency. Uh, in other words, taking responsibility uh, for your own actions. And, and James Martin um, says here, we have to ask, what is the right thing to do rather than constantly worrying about what is the most likely thing to happen. So in other words, to me that says, you know, what's going to happen is perhaps out of our control, but what we can do about things is entirely within our control. How we're going to position ourselves, what kind of proactive action we're going to take to shape events on the world stage or in our personal lives is our own within our own agency. And therefore, based on that capability and realization, I think he's, a, he's an optimist too. I think we can see uh, I, what is in our hands is we, cannot, we can't change the world individually, but we can change the people who can change the world. I think we're seeing in, in Egypt at the moment and Tunisia yeah. before and, uh, and in, in all sorts of other countries – um, people can do enormous things by speaking up and especially now with the technology it's possible for the, for the masses to get together very quickly and make their, their wishes known and so I think we can be hopeful that we can get people in power who will have, who will possibly be younger, who will have uh, better ideas about how to shape the world for the future and how to, to combat things like uh, like climate change, whether they, whether they believe it's man's fault or not that the, that, the, uh, that the planet is having problems or that they, they will work out how to mitigate the, uh, the problems that are being caused, how to work out new ways to power the world, because we obviously can't go on hauling oil out of the world forever. It's going to run out sooner or later. Um, and, and, and to get clean water to the right places, uh, enormous enormous problem, but, but perfectly doable. Uh, if you think how much, how much has already been done in the West, um, the fact that, that uh, you do not see dead bodies in the streets, which you would have seen 500 years ago. You've got, uh, you've got no sewage in the streets, which again, four, five, oh, right, two or three hundred years ago, there would have been sewage in the streets. All that, all that has been sorted out uh, 100 years ago, that was sorted out. So it, it isn't that big a jump. 
to, to get to do the same all over the world. So you've got clean water to everybody in Africa, just capturing rainwater to start with. Um, and we've seen those simple things. And Bill Gates has been very active in this with the combating malaria. His foundation, yeah. Yes, his foundation. And, and, and if more people like him and Warren Buffet are, are, are encouraged and, and people like Jim to, 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 to put their money into things like this, then he's very keen to, to encourage other, obviously he knows a lot of other very rich people living in Bermuda as he does, trying to encourage them rather than sitting on their vast amounts of money and, and uh, not doing very much to actually, it's, his message is actually it's great fun to start to do what he's done and what Bill Gates is doing, to, to actually to have a project rather the than... The Billion Years Pledge. ...growing. I think um, uh, Bill, Bill Gates calls it the Billion Years Pledge that, you know, more than half of their wealth would be given away to charity. And I think they managed to enroll together with Warren Buffett about 30 people so far, 30 billionaires, I think, yeah, I think Mark Zuckerman as well. Mark Zuckerman at Facebook, I think, is doing something similar, isn't he? I believe. Yeah. And, and, and Jim... also, these fortunes are so, and it was, it's nothing new. I mean, Carnegie and Rockefeller and all these people did it in the past. I, it, it is, once you're that rich, uh, it's no great personal loss to, to do it. Um, it's very, uh, and, and, it, and, it's, and it's good for the family name. I mean, there are lots of selfish advantages as well. Mm-hmm. These names will live forever, and Bill Gates' name certainly will will live forever, I would think, now in the work he's doing. So so let me ask you this then, uh, going back to the agency issue, w- what is Andrew Crofts doing after being exposed to the concept of the technological singularity now that you weren't doing before? What has well, changed uh, in you? Yes, well, to start with, Nicola, you've got me on, you've got me Skyping, so there, that's a start, you see, you're moving forward. Um, I th- uh, well, I think in the time I am evangelizing uh, for James, I think, and I'm talking about it more and I'm writing about it more, I think it's made me more aware in my own small way of, of how to you that I should be using technology myself, that I've got to try not to be Luddite myself. Because it's very easy, it's, it's, it's always a jump, isn't it? I mean, even just doing something like this, um, it's always, it, it, it takes a little effort to, to rig yourself up. It was the same when word processing first came along and we all had to give up our typewriters. And even though we knew that this was going to be a huge advantage to us, it, took, it takes a while um, to do that. So I think I would like to think it, it's going to make me grasp the future a little faster, um, hopefully uh, be a little less, uh, a little less scared and full of trepidation when things come along. And also to, to, to I shall evangelize um, as loudly and as often as I possibly can about James, because uh, there is a selfish element because I want to promote the book, obviously, as well. Um, but but um, I do think that James James's message should be much more widely known, as as the man himself should be much more widely known. So basically, you're pushing forward the message that he uh, puts here in the book, which he says, where he says. We have to find a way of making the world understand what is at stake here. Young people need to know that it, is, it isn't all gloom and doom. On the contrary, it's the most exciting time in history to be young. I think absolutely definitely, because I think that there's so much doom and gloom shoved at young people, and it is, this is a difficult time, it's, but then it's always difficult to be young and to be making your way in the world. It's never easy. You don't come sailing straight out of, of school or university and you're suddenly doing exactly what you want to do. It's always a struggle. But I think that they're particularly constantly being told, the young generation at the moment, 
that they're, you know, that they're, they're, they're dreaming too much, they're not going to get what they want, and the world isn't what it was when their parents were young, and the money's running out, and, and the baby boomers have, have had all the best of everything, and we've messed up <laughs> the world for them. And all, there's an element of truth in all these things, of course, but in the, in the final analysis, this is a fantastic time for them, because the technology gives them the ability to do stuff that we could, that, that someone of my age, and certainly someone of James's age, could never do when they were young. Um, we, 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 our, our world was as far away as the Stone Age compared to to um, to what young people can do today. They have they're, they're t- they have so much of their time freed up by technology. They have so much uh, ability to travel, ability to to understand. All that knowledge is at their fingertips, whereas we had to research endlessly uh, with in, in very archaic and, and time-consuming ways. It's all there uh, on their keyboards. Everything, the whole world. Is, is in Wikipedia and, and such like. Um, and it's, that's just such a fantastic advantage to anybody. Uh, I agree entirely. I agree entirely with you. And, and I also embrace the similar kind of optimism. And yet, there must be one thing which makes you be m- more optimistic than everything else. Just like there must be at least one thing that really makes, makes you fearful and, and makes you, um, remain unable to exclude entirely the possibility that we may make the biggest mistake and sort of wipe ourselves out or bring us back to the dark ages. So what what would be those two things, the the one that inspires you the most and the one that you're the most fearful about? I think the one that inspires me is what I was just talking about, about the knowledge, the fact that it's all there and, and, and it'll become more and more organized and more and more accessible. That, that is definitely the thing to, I think to feel most optimistic about because once you've got the knowledge, um, you can do anything. You know, knowledge is, is the key. I think the thing to be most fearful about is probably the gap between the rich and the poor. And I don't just mean individuals. I think, I think that's not brilliant to have, uh, you know, everyone uses the bank as an example, but they're not the only people. We, we all know that, that, uh, that inequality is, is getting worse and worse, but the inequality between countries and continents. And I think because um, it, everything is conspiring against, uh, against Africa, isn't it, at the moment, the climate is, is conspiring, uh, the, the, the politics, the economics, it's, it's, it's a very tough struggle down there. And although, again, there are, there are a lot of very optimistic signs down there, and there are certain countries like Uganda where there's a lot of positive stuff as well as negative stuff. Um, but ultimately, the, as it gets hotter and hotter, it's going to get harder and harder for them to farm the land, um, and things are going to get more and more difficult. So I think probably, uh, although I can feel very optimistic about people uh, who are already quite well off in the, in the Western world, um, I think I would be fearful for uh, some of the people who are already at the bottom of the pile that it's going to get worse before it gets better for them. Okay, Andrew, I think uh, we're coming back towards the end of our interview here. And I would like to ask you the one thing that you would like for our listeners to take away from this podcast interview today with you. What, if you had one message to give us, what would that be? I think I would like them to find out more about James. I would like them, like you, as you did, uh, to have a look at his film online, because I think that's, that's extremely interesting, and to look into what he's doing at the school. Um, if they Google Oxford Martin School, um, they'll find all sorts of very interesting stuff going on there. I think, And I think just for people to... to, to 
lift the, I think just to lift their spirits and be more optimistic about the future and to stop constantly um, looking on the on the dark side. I, I mean, bad things do happen and, and are happening and will happen, uh, but but on the whole, more and more good stuff is happening out there, and and uh, and people should, should celebrate that and rejoice in it and feel better. I think than less less uh, less depressed about everything. And uh, for those of our listeners who are actually interested to find out more about you yourself and and your work, uh, where would be the best place to start? Uh, probably my website, which is uh, just andrewcrofts.com, um, and uh, everything is on there. There's a, there's, a, there's a short film about me and, uh, and a few articles and some of the books that I'm allowed to talk about. So, um, yeah. I would actually publish again the, the short film um, underneath our interview so that people can watch it right there okay. uh, without having to... Um, uh, you know, click anything. But of course, I would also send, uh, post the links to your website. Um, I would like to finish our interview with uh, one of the, I think, most fundamental quotes um, from your book. Um, and again, it's it's a quote uh, by J- from James Martin, where he says, "The fundamental question of our time is: Will Homo sapiens survive?" If it does survive, will it learn from its mistakes? If we understand this century and learn how to play its very complex game, our future will be magnificent. If we get it wrong, we may be at the start of a new type of a dark of dark age. Or worse, we may be extinguished. Couldn't put it better myself. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you actually put it... Uh, and, and right on that topic, did you record your conversations with him, or how did you take those extensive quotes, both about his biography and during your time that you were there? Yeah, I did. I, yes, I record. Uh, I, uh, I, I like to just have a tape recorder running the whole time because then that leaves you free to to um, just follow the conversation as it goes without without constantly having to take notes. If we're constantly writing, it's very distracting and. And exhausting, uh, but the, and again these days, another wonderful progress. A, a little MP3 player will uh, will just keep recording away in the background, and nobody, everyone forgets it's even there. So I spent a lot of time wandering around with that. So you're you're getting more and more updated on technology. First with a simple MP3 player, then with Skype uh, conversations and interviews, and uh, who knows what's next. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> do we have Do we have an Excellent. inkling on your Very next prof- project? Sorry. Do we have an inkling on your next project, and is it related or? Um, at, at the moment, I'm no, at the moment I'm doing. I have a number of projects, um, and one of them is is uh, is based in Africa, um, and there's um, and there's some fiction as well that I'm doing, which uh, and and. Which I hope is, is uh, going to be turned into television soon. So it's very, very broad. One, another of the reasons why it's wonderful to be a, a writer and and a ghostwriter is the variety. That one minute you can be uh, on a private island in Bermuda, and the next minute you can be down a down a down a dark alley somewhere talking to somebody uh, very, very different. So it's uh, it's a varied and fascinating life. You know, I'll keep you here for another couple of minutes because. Uh, the quote that I just made was from the towards the end of the book, but but um, since you've mentioned your uh, current projects and the fact that some of them can be going to to TV soon, 
Uh, I wanted to ask you a little more about uh, the ghost, um, the Robert Harris book, which eventually became the backbone for um, uh, Polanski's uh, film with uh, Pierce Brosnan and Ian Mc, Mc, uh, Ian McGregor. Ian McGregor, that's right. And, and uh, especially since in the introduction of the book, you have this very interesting quote, which I, I, I'd love to, to give here. And you say, of all the advantages that ghosting offers, one of the greatest must be the opportunity that you get to meet people of interest. Yeah, I'd spoken well, Robert, um, Robert Harris's book, as you say, which also, the film and the book are very, very similar because he, he was involved with the script with Roman Polanski. So were you he the prototype for the, for the, for the, were you the prototype for the, for the character in a way? Who knows? Who knows, Nicola? But he, I know that Robert read the book, um, and he used a quote from uh, my book. I've written a book on, called Ghostwriting, which is about how to be and hire a ghostwriter. Um, and he quoted me at the beginning of each chapter. And the, as you say, that one you've, you've read, that was the, the opening, uh, the opening chapter, which sort of sums it up. But I think uh, there were a lot of parallels that struck me because the book, um, is set on, uh, on an island where the ghostwriter is taken off to meet this ex-prime minister. Who's, Absolutely. Who's, who's doing his memoirs and the whole thing unfolds. Um, and I was off at the same time as the, as the film's coming out. I was off to Jim's Island, so so the parallels did, did strike me. Um, but actually, having having read uh, the, the Robert Harris book, he I think he must have taken in quite a bit of what I've written in the book because his his portrayal of a ghostwriter's life is extremely accurate. Um, he uh, he he weaves it into a thriller, and and my life isn't quite as terrifying as it, as as the plot is for for you and McGregor as the ghost in, in the film. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but but the actual the, the mechanics of being a ghostwriter and the feel of it and many of the things that he says uh, yes are very similar to what I've said in uh, what I said in the book so uh, yeah well there you go yes I think so probably well Andrew Croft uh, on that note I would like to thank you once again for taking time to be with us today and I would like to also wish you good luck with your ongoing projects. And maybe we'll see them on TV or on the big screen as they're unfolding. Um, I would also like to thank very much to all of our listeners and viewers of Singularity One-on-One. -on -One. I hope you guys all enjoyed listening to this interview as much as I enjoyed talking to Andrew. And uh, you can go and listen to uh, the interview in full or download it to singularityweblog.com. Thank you. Thank you.